Hello everyone, welcome to Pap Stories and this is your host Sankit Thakur. Now the word Pap here is a shorter version of research papers and nothing else. Now this is a podcast where I talk to different PhD students about their research work and a paper of their own choice. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Mr. Marius Hobbin, who is currently a PhD student at the University of Tübingen. I met Marius recently at EDS 2021, for which he was the main organizer, and I was really inspired by his views on effective altruism and doing more good as a society. I will talk more about it at the end of the podcast. So welcome again, Marius, and it's a pleasure hosting you. Let's start first talking about your current research work and what you are currently focusing on in your PhD. Right, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing a PhD in Tübingen with Philip Hennig, and um, the purpose of my PhD, or the, the, the general field, is within Bayesian machine learning, um, and that includes both um, neural networks, but also more classical techniques, such as probabilistic graphical models, expectation propagation, stuff like this. And the overarching goal of my PhD is to, to make Bayesian machine learning faster and more scalable. Because if you look at Bayesian machine learning right now, or a lot of Bayesian techniques, they're just either very slow or they don't scale to really large para, uh, models such as neural networks or large parameterized um, models in general. So sort of my goal is to scale them um, and to make them really fast. And, and so we, we're taking kind of a different approach that you would usually take. Normally, people look at a, a technique and say, okay, maybe it's too slow, maybe it's not scalable. Let's make it a let's take an existing technique and make it slightly faster. Whereas my approach is let's think about which kind of techniques um, could be really fast and then try to make them more accurate. So basically, we're coming from the other direction. We're only looking at techniques that are very fast already. Right. And one way to do this. Um, that, that I'm currently exploring in most of my research is uh, through Laplace approximations. So Laplace approximations are a very cheap way to fit a Gaussian um, to an already existing model. So you'll get sort of a, a probability distribution with very little effort, but obviously not everything is always Gaussian. So what I'm currently looking into is um, how can we use the advantages of Laplace approximations um, because they're very cheap and they give you a Gaussian um, but also apply them to non-Gaussian uh, probability distributions through, I don't know, various approximation techniques and sort of simple um, techniques within probability theory. And this started um, with a small improvement in Bayesian neural networks that I did during my master thesis and then extended into my PhD, which is originally a, an idea from um, David J. McKay. And he had this idea already in 1998, I think. So it's not that I, I came up with this or something. It's just it, it was around for 20 years and nobody bothered to pick it up. And then this idea was further developed by Philip Hennig, so my supervisor, in their PhD thesis 10 years ago or so. And now sort of Philip is passing on the buck to me. And, and I'm sort of the first one who applies this in a very, in a more structured way. Yeah, so I think the, the main goal behind Bayesian machine learning is to bring uncertainty to, to, to deep learning because so 
if I think of a neural network right now, and if you think of any layer, what you think of is sort of an array of numbers. So one weight is just one number, right? Like maybe it's 0.4. And it's, but what the what the Bayesians in in, in deep neural and deep deep learning want you to think about is this is a distribution. It's not necessarily just one weight. It's a distribution over weights, for example. Sure. But you can also add uncertainty to other parts of the neural network, right? If there's outputs, uh, or I mean, obviously you always have outputs and yeah. you might also want uh, the uncertainty over the outputs that might be important in image, um, in, in medical image analysis, for example. You don't only want to know that the neural network says, okay, like, I think this might be cancer, um, or I think this is cancer. You also wanted to say, with probability X, and I'm so-and-so sure about this probability estimate, because yeah, sometimes it's just a bit wrong. Interesting. I think that you're working at the very core of machine learning. Um, maybe perhaps that's why your website name is also Machine Learning with Linear Algebra. And I must insist my listener to go through his website, which I will put a link in the description. And I think his views on machine learning in general and about policies and ethics is very insightful. So do give it a read. So let's move forward and talk about the paper which we're going to discuss today. So we're looking at the paper Concrete Problems in AI Safety. So I think it makes sense to go a little bit into context um, first to understand what the context of this paper is before we actually go into the content. Sure. So the paper was published in 2016. So it's five years and five years within the AI, within AI in general is quite a long time. So I would say you really have to think back at what, what the AI landscape was in 2016. There was no transformers, for example, yet. Yeah. GPT-3 didn't exist, all of this. And so I think there was... In, in general society, there was a big hype about AI, like deep learning has just been around the corner. Mm -hmm. Other people were insanely worried. And then there were very weird depictions in the media. Like some people talked about robot invasions and I don't know, created some sort of doomsday scenarios like yeah. Terminator style robots that would invade the world. And so I think in like that, that was the perspective from, from the outside, from the media. But from the inside, there were, as a result of this, there were a lot of people, or not as a result of this, but so there were some people within the AI move, uh, within the AI movement who said, okay, maybe we shouldn't think, think about these doomsday scenarios, but like realistic worries that we should have about AI. And I think they were looked down, uh, down upon a bit because they were seen as the idiots who don't understand it because people from, the, from inside of the field always thought, they were thinking about the Terminators, Terminator style robots and stuff like this. I think that there were some people within the movement who were correctly worried about AI, but they were always kind of ignored or looked down upon. Sure. And I think to some extent, this trend still exists. It's just sort of less, less intense now. Yeah. And that meant that a couple of people, um, in this case, the, the authors of this paper, so for example, um, Dario Amodai and Chris Ola, who were at Google Brain at the time, then went to OpenAI and now founded a new orga organization called Anthropic, which is fo focused only on AI safety. Okay. They wanted to get some sense into this discussion, right? So they wanted to basically say, okay, we're, we're not thinking about the doomsday scenarios, about the crazy ones, sure. but there are still sort of some very concrete problems that we need to think about. Like, think about now in the next five years or from, from basically 2016, in the next five years, it's not some futuristic weird ass scenario. It's just concrete problems. Okay. 
And this is why they call the paper Concrete Problems in AI. Okay, let's talk about some of the things or the main areas which were discussed in the paper. The most interesting one, which I find is having, uh, there was one uh, main areas which the authors talk about is avoiding the negative side effects from the uh, from the exploration phase of the environment. That is, uh, the AI agents should be made to train in such a manner that it avoids, and so the consequences is not having a neg negative side effect on the environment or maybe on the agent itself which was a really bit interesting because it counts, it kind of also depend on the other areas which was discussed in the paper that is safe exploration that is allowing the agent to explore as much as possible for the environment but to quantify as to what extent it should be allowed in the environment so maybe you want to talk about it because these two aspects sound kind of a little bit similar safe exploration and avoiding negative side effects Right. Yeah. So, so what the authors do, and I think this is very helpful for me uh, to to understand the paper, is they always give you a very concrete example with a cleaning robot. And yeah. so, by cleaning robot, they don't mean like the 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 automatic vacuum cleaners that is that might be driving around in your house. Yeah. But rather, they mean like a a, a human like cleaning robot that basically does all the cleaning tasks that you're you're not interested in. Yeah. And so, the first thing you were saying is. Uh, or the, one of the five aspects that they talk about, avoiding negative side effects, um, which you explained to some extent, I just want to add the example is that if you have the cleaning robot, you want it to not disturb the environment in negative ways while pursuing its goals. It means if there is a vase, you don't want the robot to sort of smash, to touch the vase and, 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 and unfortunately smash it um, while cleaning the rest. Sure. So that's, 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 I think the example that they choose for avoiding negative side effects. And then the second aspect that you talked about was safe exploration. Just to give another example that they use in the paper is um, you want the robot to experiment around with, with certain strategies, maybe how to mop the floor faster or something. But there's a couple of things which you don't want it to do. Like you don't want it to put a wet mop on an electrical outlet um, mm -hmm. because yeah, it will get a, an electrical shock. So these are just sort of ideas Sure. or two of the five, five negative side effects or ideas, that, uh, concrete problems that they talk about. Okay. And also one of the things to tackle these kind of effects that they, which they mentioned in the paper is um, penalizing the robots or penalizing the agent whenever it kind of have a negative effects on the environment. But this is still a kind of like a vague or still not a good strategy to work upon it. Like if you, because if you're working for a complex environment, let's say if the agent is playing Dota, you need to, uh, let's say, communicate with the environment to explore more uh, possible good moves, let's say. Or you need to come up with a better strategy or to define a budget to how much or what extent you can explore the environment. But these two strategies, don't you think, is still kind of like a, a poor approach to solving this, this, these problems, like having a negative side effects or to quantifying how much the agent should explore the environment? Because this is still a vague uh, solution to this strategy, which I believe. Um. I disagree with you here. So I think it's it's one possible strategy to solve a very complicated problem. It's it's not clear that it's the best, but I think it's one path to victory. Sure. So just to to make the comparison to Dota, in Dota I agree with you. It, it would be bad if you penalize the the agent too much for doing certain things because if you do something in Dota and like if you explore a path in Dota, 
and it doesn't lead to the desired goal, then there is no negative effect. It's just, I don't know, some random bits on a computer that that sort of weren't in the way that you intended as, as a human, but it, it has no negative effect on the world in any in any um, important sense or relevant sense. But that's not true for the cleaning robot or for real life exploration. Because yeah. in real life, if you just say, okay, we need to train a, a robot that explores a lot to find the best strategies, And one of the strategies that the robot tries is to smash everything in the room and then sort of, mm -hmm. um, because maybe if, the, if there is no room, then there is nothing to clean anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Then this is a strategy, for example, that would yield something that the robot is interested in. And it is also something that might be a strategy that ex is explored by the robot, but it's something that is really, really undesirable from a human standpoint. So I would say the difference between sort of these simulated environments like Dota And the real world is that suddenly consequence, like bad consequences matter. So I think you have to penalize the influence in some, in some way to prevent negative outcomes. Okay. And this is interesting because you mentioned uh, like uh, these rewards or let's say this environment exploration can kind of depend on different environments, which brings us to a third uh, effect, which is reward hacking. And it says that, okay, agent might kind of find loopholes or let's say shortcut in the environment. So let's talk about the indoor cleaning agents. Let's say the agent or let's say their cleaning robot finds the garbage and it goes out and it throws in the dustbin. So it kind of does it again and again. It finds the garbage in the room, it goes out and it throws in the dustbin. What if the agent is allowed to explore the room a little bit more so that it can find the garbage bin inside of the room so that it can just put the garbage in the dustbin very close to it. So, so I, I think of reward hacking as something different than breaking, um, sort of finding a strategy that breaks, breaks some mechanics. So maybe okay. to get this a bit more concrete. So in, in, the, in the example of the paper that we're currently discussing, mm -hmm. um, one, one way in which the, the robot might break its reward function is by, for example, putting a bucket on its head, right? Suddenly everything the robot sees is clean if, if the inside of the bucket is clean. Sure. And that would mean that sort of it thinks, okay, my job is done, even though sort of it, it unintentionally or maybe even intentionally changed the way in which or, or doesn't, doesn't do the thing that we intended it to do in the first place. Um, so it, it changes the reward, right? Which leads us to the, I guess, the second last aspect of it, having the scalable oversight, which is still a bit confusing when I read the paper that they talk about uh, having feedback for the AI agent. And mostly they talk about having the human feedback because let's say they talk about an example that they, there's a cleaning robot in the room and you clean the room. And most of the time uh, that you don't get any feedback from the person or let's say any anybody in the room that you have done a good job. So can you explain a little bit about how, what does scalable oversight might mean? Because I'm still kind of like vague on this idea. What do you mean by human feedback? Yeah. When you're training an agent, you don't really perform a human feedback. In that loop. Yeah. So, so I think one possible solution, like, so let's say we, we, we had the two problems. We realize it might avoid reward hacking at some point. It might destroy some stuff unintentionally. So maybe it just needs sort of some, some learning, right? Some teaching from a human who so sometimes goes over and, and tells the robot, this was good, this was not so good. And then the robot sort of learns and therefore has, so the, a human has oversight. But now the question becomes, okay, but how do we do this in a manner that doesn't require the human to be around the robot 
all the time because asking a human or having a human employed to only teach the robot all the time is quite a quite ex quite an expensive yeah. task maybe yeah. not even not even not even feasible um but but on the other side we still want to have some sort of oversight so the question that they're asking is how do we ensure scalable oversight so how can maybe one human teach a lot of robots um and and how how can we ensure that the robots kind of learn very quickly without having to tell them what to do all the time but only a couple of times maybe okay one of the possible solutions which i think they also talk on the paper is having a semi supervised learning technique where the ai agent is still evaluated on the action but the feedback are uh, like the rewards is received on a sample of action instead of like the whole entire set of actions performed by the ai agent uh it's one of the possible solutions that they also talk about having a semi supervised learning technique to kind of better model the rewards maybe but i don't know because this is not still not uh, relevant to human feedback as richu said recently about it but oh, yeah no, so so i i think it uh, you, it is related to human feedback so let's say the human feedbacks are all the labeled uh, parts of the semi supervised learning algorithm and and then the robot sort of does exploration on its own and then you'll get a label once or once in a while but most of the time it's just unlabeled uh, exploration yeah. right okay. so so i think it's the, the two these two concepts are very related okay so let's talk about the last one which is i think the last it's robustness yeah, to distribution yeah robustness to distributional change which is if i might if i may to say that basically creating an agent which is kind of like generalizable to every other environment right so like yes. let's say you train a you train a computer vision model to identify the dogs so if if provided with an image of a cookie it should be able to identify that it's not a dog and it's a cookie kind of like that it's in the similar scenario right if i'm not wrong I I think it's not exactly the same but it's comparable. So let's say it's trained in an environment that is um I don't know um maybe a flat where people live and it's trained to clean there and now you put it into uh, you take it out of its training environment and you put it into another mm -hmm. environment let's say an office then it's supposed to work there as well. So in in your example of the dog and the cookie it would be um if it's trained on cookies or trained on dogs and is able to recognize dogs in the training environment and if you just change the distribution of the dogs so you give you show images that still contain dogs but maybe with a different background or a different breed of dogs it would it should still be able to recognize that sort of the dog is the main feature of of this of this okay. image so that kind of comes in the like the explainability explainability a few moments later explainability parts of it like why what features can kind of leads to that kind of prediction for that uh, specific image isn't it but yeah we are kind of moving away from that subject mm -hmm. over here but uh, i kind of ask like uh, this is still kind of a, like a very uh, challenging problem robustness to distributional change because okay when you are in a new environment sometimes the robot many a times the robot might still be confused as to okay what need to do next what do you think the robot should do if it is still kind of confused on on its on its confidence score for the next possible actions should it kind of just go and do the wrong action or should it be doing nothing what should be the better way so i mean 
so I think that the paper discusses a lot of possible um, solutions for this, but I personally think that in the in the scenario that you just proposed to me right now, I think it is better to not act because in expectation, not acting is not as bad or actions have higher negative reward than positive reward. Like mm. if you just assume you do a random action in your room um, with a random object, then the probability that this is a good action is much lower than that is a bad action. Like you could, I don't know, unintentionally um, throw your computer off your desk, which would be a bad action where you could, I don't know, or many of many of the actions would probably be neutral or, or don't, or maybe just slightly annoying. Like if you just take a book and put it somewhere else, but some yeah. actions are really negative and only very few actions, I think much less, act, uh, much less actions are actually very positive. Sure. And also, I think since you mentioned in the starting that uh, this paper was released in 2016, and uh, uh, if you look at the in today's increasing trend towards the end-to-end -end autonomous system, there is kind of a, like a unified, uh, there's kind of a need for a unified approach to handle this kind of AI safety kind of context. So this paper is still kind of relevant in today's scenarios, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's more relevant than ever because... Uh, machine learning algorithms become more powerful. I think we can see that with GPT-3. But yeah. if you apply it in a world where it's unaligned, like it doesn't, it doesn't have the same goals as humans, or it doesn't know anything about, um, or it does, it does things that we find bad, then this can lead to very bad outcomes. Like if you train um, a therapeutic bot on GPT-3, then sometimes the bot will probably, or I think that that has already happened. It will recommend to kill yourself which is something that people with, with mental illnesses really don't need to hear. Sure. So it can have a lot of negative impacts if you sort of don't ensure that it does the, the thing you intended it to do. Okay. Uh, lastly, I would like to ask one generic question. Do you think that the AI today is up to that level? Or let's say, is it that smart that we need to be afraid of it? Or like stop thinking about the safety kind of context from AI developing? You think the AI is still that smart or up to that level? I mean, I find it hard to classify, but I think no matter how smart or not smart the AI is, it's always reasonable and important to think about the safety aspects because yeah. you, will, you will employ it on a task. If it doesn't do the task you intended it to do, but a slightly different task, there will be negative side effects. So it's all like, even if like that, that's even true for shitty AIs, like, I don't know, the 30 years ago or so, right? Mm -hmm. It's still, it's still important that the AI does this thing we wanted to do. Yeah. And therefore, I think it always makes sense to think about the AI safety. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting discussion on the paper and the paper itself is pretty interesting. Like uh, two days ago, when I was looking for the paper on, and I Googled the, on the title of the paper, you get like so many explanations on videos uh, and blogs people have written about it. There are so many people talking about the paper, which is really kind of interesting discussion and yeah, and thank you so much for recommending the paper, <laughs> which kind of leads us to the end of it. So maybe uh, because I, you also told me during the EDS that you're also working on effective altruism. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of glimpse of what effective altruism is and yeah, what exactly it is, because that kind of yeah. really inspired me to, uh, on that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll give you a, a short overview. So sure. I think effective altruism really starts with a very simple idea. And then it's just a simple question that you, you ask, which is, how can I do the most good? And then the question branches out into so many further questions, like, 
how do I define most? Like, what is what is doing good actually? How how can we define this? How can we measure this in the real world? And I so to just give you maybe a bit of a historical perspective on this, I think there are sort of two branches that come that that sort of lead to AI. One is uh, to effective altruism. One is from the philosophical side. So there were people like Peter Singer, who is a famous philosopher by now. He was writing about animal ethics and and, and the drowning child problem and moral philosophy for 40 years. Um, And he was quite famous in in certain communities, but he was also part of the reason why EA became such a big big thing. Then then there's William McAskill, who wrote Doing Good Better, which is probably one of the uh, core books within the EA movement and has led many people to, to think about effective altruism. And by now, there's a lot of philosophers who are in some way or other involved with effective altruism. And they think about questions like how, <clears throat> which kind of moral theories um, can, be, can be quantified in such a way that you can, you, can, you, can do, you can realize which kind of actions are better than others. Or, I don't know, asking, asking a lot of different questions within this realm that are related to the question, how to do the most good. Okay. And then there is a completely different side, which also led to effective altruism which is sort of from a financial perspective. So there were a couple of quantitative traders who wanted to donate their money, but they just, they didn't want to donate in some way. They wanted to donate in the most effective way. And they were baffled by how little comparisons there are, like quantitative comparisons between different research, uh, between different uh, organizations to which you can donate to. So they thought, okay, well, there need to be, like, there has to be some way in which you can compare them. So they founded and GiveWell, which is an organization that still exists until today. And it compares different uh, organizations uh, for their effectiveness. So for example, um, so, so they use um, um, concepts that are used quite, quite broadly in the medical space, which is called qualies, uh, quality adjusted life years or disability adjusted life years, um, depending on who you ask or which, which kind of concept you want to use. And, they, and that basically is a way to quantify how bad a disease is. So they, they look at different diseases and different ways to treat the disease and different ways in which uh, different organizations are able to, to treat the disease. And then they have really complicated uh, spreadsheets in which, they, in which they sort of take a lot of different factors into account and come to sort of a rough estimate. So for example, the, the, the charities that they recommend right now, they, they, they say, have um, it costs around about three to five thousand dollars to save one life, whereas save one life means um, sort of prevent a person or give a person thirty more high quality life years. Okay. Um, and then sort of these two branches, the philosophical branch and the financial branch, they came together and, and sort of. In created this movement, which is now known as effective altruism, and it has branched out into a lot of different organizations, into lots of different people um, being involved in the movement in some way or another. I mean, I think this idea is also interesting from a government's uh, point of view, right? Like if you're a government, you also want to employ your money effectively, and you want to think about which kind of interventions make sense and which don't. And stuff like this. So there is lots of people who are also now considering to be in government or who are already in government and think this in, this is interesting. Okay. And 
there's a couple of big organizations that that sort of sprang out from this. So one is 80,000 hours. It's a it's a website or I mean it's an organization which has a website that that is that explores how you can do the most good within your career because their argument is basically choosing your career is probably a very big decision in your life because you spend around 80,000 hours in an, in a job. Yeah. And and therefore it's given that you that it's a big decision and given that you have a lot of impact positive or negative with your career um you should really think about what what you want to do sure and they give you tips and and ideas on how to choose it uh that's really interesting um thank you so much for telling that but i believe effective altruism has many chapters all across europe or is it just confined to germany uh like it has chapters in germany only no, it's it's all around it's all around the world. So basically, um, wherever you go, most universities do have an effective altruism chapter by now. So you can just look up their your local group. If you don't have a local group, there is regular online meetings for people who don't have a local group within their um, within their surroundings. So you can just um, yeah, Google Google for online groups, and you'll always find someone to talk about effective altruism. There is also fellowships where you basically get to from zero to a hundred within eight weeks mm-hmm. um, on effective altruism. You just meet a couple of people who are interested in it. You read a bit and stuff like this. All right. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Marius, for, for a very insightful discussion on the research and effective altruism as well. It was, it was indeed a pleasure talking to you on Friday morning. That was really insightful. And thank you for your time on, on today's. And yeah, it was very amazing talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Hit that follow button to keep meeting new people and talk about their research work and getting to know exciting papers every time I upload a podcast.